Amen. Aren't you glad you got something to sing about? I think a lot of these uh, groups out here, they've, they've, uh, they don't have a hymn book. And if they do, it's just a couple of, you know, just kind of like a dirge stuff, man. But man, you've got two hymnals here and there's almost a thousand hymns and they're all about being in love with one man, Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you what, if you're a Christian, you're saved, you have got something to sing about. And uh, <clears throat> Well, take your Bible tonight. We've gotten through 1 Thessalonians. We're going to turn the page and go right into 2 Thessalonians. So, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Now, that last uh, part, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, I believe it's verse 12 to 28, man, or 27, that was good stuff. Good stuff, and not because uh, I was giving it out, but just because um, it's just like Paul to end uh, his epistle on some extremely practical stuff. And I like the Christianity you can wear all week long, amen? <clears throat> all right, Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 1, and let's go ahead and pray. Father, we sure love you. Father, we do. We thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, for Calvary. Thank you, Lord, you've given us something to sing about. Thank you, Lord, you saved us from our sins. And, Father, we come before you tonight, and, Father, we plead the blood of Jesus Christ. Father, we need help. Father, we need help as this is a perfect book written by the Holy Spirit of God. And, Father, unless you help us, unless you fill us with your spirit, Lord, we're just going to be as ignorant as we are when we come in the door. And, Father, we need your help to open our eyes. Father, that's exactly what we need. So we ask Thee, and uh, we totally depend upon You to move and uh, give us exactly what we need tonight. Father, be with those who couldn't come tonight, maybe those who didn't want to come. Would You encourage them? Would You strengthen them? <clears throat> and Father, we, uh, we love You, and we just thank You for the opportunity to be here. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> now, in 2 Thessalonians, I'll just give you some quick information, some introductory information here. Uh, of course, as you can see here, it's only got three chapters. And uh, 47 verses, it's got 1,042 words. And the main purpose of this book, as written by the Apostle Paul, no doubt, is to exhort and edify this church. And uh, <clears throat> it's a letter of help, all right? It's a letter of help to a growing church. And uh, this church is growing, but it still has problems, all right? And what you need to understand uh, in the scope of things is any time a church is growing, it will have problems. Matter of fact, if a church is not having problems, I question its growth. All right? And a lot of times you've got to be careful that you don't mix up numerics with growth. All right? And you'll see that thing as we go through. And when a church is growing, it'll have problems. And when a church is not growing, it has less problems. <laughs> All right, and it's interesting because you and I, we don't want difficulty. We really don't. Um, you know, every once in a while, the Lord will give you and I the right perspective of things, and we can then understand when we're going through things why we had to go through it sometimes. But still, once you come out the backside of that thing, you really don't want to go back into it again, do you? You want the sun to come out, the clouds to roll back, and just let's roll on. <laughs> but, uh, <clears throat> but here... Uh, there's three areas that Paul is trying to exhort and edify this church in. First of all, you, in chapter 1, you'll see as we go through, this church had been, per, been persecuted. There's persecution in chapter 1. Uh, uh, you get to chapter 2, there's some wrong teachings on prophecy, and the apostle Paul, he addresses that. 
and you get to chapter 3, you find out there's uh, some wrong practical, some wrong teaching on practical issues. So three things there, and Paul's coming in here with the book of 2 Thessalonians, this letter, this epistle, and he's trying to help them out. And they're susceptible to false doctrine and to practical issues because, why? They're a new church. They're a growing church. And uh, what will happen many times in a new church is they'll get off on some things as far as prophecy is concerned, and they'll get off on some things as far as practical issues. And, and here's, here's where the trouble comes from. I'll just write this on the board. The trouble comes from three different areas, and uh, it's actually very simplistic when you look at it. Here's where the trouble is going to come from. Simply, number one, the trouble is going to come from doing right. And uh, number two, the trouble is going to come from uh, getting the Bible wrong. If you get the Bible wrong, you're going to run into trouble. There's no way around it. And then finally, number three, the third area that the trouble comes from is not only doing right, not only getting the Bible wrong, but then you're still, you're still a fleshly being doing wrong. That's where the trouble is going to come. All right? So that's the three areas. <clears throat> and uh, those three areas will happen to any young church, young church. And listen, uh, this church building, uh, it, look, I get it. 1885 is when this church building, not the one you're sitting in, but actually I think it's out in that foyer to the left, right? The original thing, they, they, they built it in 1885 and they decided we don't want it here and then they put, it, put a bunch of horses up to it and put logs under it and drug it five or six miles. I mean, how in the world do they do that? Anyways, you ever just stop thinking, why, who got the harebrained idea one more? Let's move the church six miles down or we ain't got nothing else to do, you know? <laughs> Let's just hook up the horses and cut down a bunch of trees and let's just do this roly-poly thing, you know. <laughs> you know, they didn't have Highway 55 then, but anyways, let's pull it down six miles. But we're not talking about how long a building has stood, okay? You need to understand that. We're talking about a young new church, and in all practicality, uh, where my family and I fit in this thing, I've been a pastor here since 2015. Uh, we've been ministering since 2014, all right? Uh, but the Lord did not initially call me to start Bible Believers Baptist Church. You say, yeah, well, what did he do? Well, he called me to come here and minister to people, and he called me to shut down the old Hemlock Road Baptist Church. What you have to remember is that the Lord always calls a man to start a work, his man, and he always calls a man to shut it down. And that's what the Lord called me to do. But the Lord gave us a new lease on things, not uh, in the sense of the building of the business, but uh, in February, uh, the men of the church said, hey, it's time. And believe you me, I wanted a new name, but I wasn't going to open my yap about that thing because I wanted to make sure the Lord was in on it. And in February 2018, the Lord allowed us to start Bible Believers Baptist Church right here. Amen. <clears throat> and uh, you got to keep that thing in mind. And the final chapter of the old church was closed finished and finalized, whether anybody likes it or not, in February 2018. That's the way it went down. You say, why? Because the church had such a terrible name in whole that even the people in the community had enough sense to stay away. <laughs> so the Lord said, well, it's time to shut her down. And then, in, uh, like I said, February 2018, the Lord allowed uh, my family and I had about a dozen people to begin Bible Believers Baptist Church. And there's about four people left from that beginning. I know many people were 
alongside of us from the beginning, but uh, they won't mind me saying Brother Cole, Sister Courtney, and Sister Mary Ann, Sister Eleanor. That's the last four, what do you, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> and the Lord's brought the rest of you along the way, praise God, amen. And, uh, but we're talking about a young church, this church in Thessalonica. And uh, we, by all means, have been uh, a local assembly uh, here since February 2018. If you think about that in the scheme of things, we've only been a true local church under this name about four and a half years. You say, what does that mean? We're a young church. I'm just showing you it has practicality. The Thessalonians were a young church and they had a problem in three areas. They were, they were getting persecuted, they had some wrong teaching on prophecy, and they had some wrong teaching on practical issues. And uh, those are the reasons also that they're going to have trouble. You get, you get in trouble, you get persecuted from doing right, you get in trouble, you get uh, in a jam when you start getting the Bible wrong, and then you get in trouble when you start doing wrong. All right, And those three areas will all affect uh, the new church. So with that type of introduction here, let's begin verse 1. The Bible says, Paul... And Silvanus and Timotheus under the church of the Thessalonians and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, that's Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Amen? And Paul, he's always writing under the church. Under the church. Everywhere you look, it's under the church. Under the church. He's not writing unto uh, an individual uh, besides uh, uh, Onesimus there, uh, or I'm sorry, Philemon there. But he's writing under the church, under the church, under the church, and it's a real... Uh, and you need to be in the church to find out what's going on. Does that make sense? He's writing to the church, and you need to be in the church to find out what's going on. Look at verse 2. He says, Grace unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I know. Can you imagine if these folks uh, never went to church? They never would have known what Paul wanted them to know. So that's a practical thing you need to take away from it. And the lesson is that as a Christian, the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 10, 25, it says, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. Now, that's, that's the way it is today. That's the way it is in 2000. This is not the 80s. This is not the 80s. This is not even the 90s. <laughs> Remember the 90s? You like, you, okay, some of you don't, all right? <laughs> all right. Some of you all remember the 60s? It's not the 60s, man. <laughs> but Paul says in Hebrews 10, he says, look, there, there's the manner of some is. What's that? The manner of some people is not to go to church. And I'm not getting on you if you're here today, okay? I don't want you to get the wrong message. This isn't a chance to, to, to wallop the saints and all that. But that's the message you need to take away. When Paul writes unto the church, the point is this. You need to be in the church to find out what's being, what's being preached and taught. And he says, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another. Amen. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. You see, there's something about that old church house and the environment of the local church, and it produces, it produces an environment, it produces, a, puts on you a pressure to do right. You see, when you don't come to church, uh, it's, it's not necessarily the sin of forsaking the assembling of yourselves together. Eventually, that gets you in a bad way. But what happens is you become on this little island all by yourself. But what you need, according to Hebrews chapter 10, 20, you need that exhortation. You need that encouragement. You need that pressure when you walk into the church house and you see other people still loving God, still wanting to serve God, still wanting to do... You need that, and you need it on a weekly basis. Why? Because things ain't getting any better. And he said the manner of some is to forsake it. 
So I'm going to be like the old preacher, Lord willing. I want to be in the caboose of that train, and there be, I don't care how many Bible-believing brethren shooting out the windows and shooting out the doors, not wanting to go to church. I want to be that guy. I don't care if I'm a preacher, and I want to be that guy, even in my 70s and 80s, the Lord lets me live that long, to be in that caboose, pulling back that emergency brake and watching all the sparks fly and says, I ain't going to miss. Why? Because I need it. You say, well, I don't. Well, you must be the exception because I sure need it. <laughs> Amen. And that's, that's the thing you got to take away. Now look at verse 3. Look at verse 3. Uh, the Bible says, We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is meet, because that your faith groweth exceedingly. So again, it's a growing church. You see it? And notice where they're growing. They're growing in faith. That's a blessing. Uh, notice also what's next in verse 3. And the charity of every one of you all toward each other aboundeth. So they're growing in faith, number one. And they're growing in charity, number two. And a lot of times you can't always see when a person grows in faith, but you're bound to determine, you're bound to see when someone grows in charity. Why? Because charity is something that gives. All right? Now, it's not necessarily just a dollar bill or something slapped in the back of that thing. But, but Paul, notice that Paul doesn't say they're growing numerically. And one of the signs of a growing church is that their faith is increasing and that their charity is increasing. That means they're giving to others. You know, for you to increase in charity, God has to give you grace. And God has to do a supernatural work inside of you to actually see there's a need greater than yourself. Because you and I were developed, God put it within us to take care of us. And if you dwell on the flesh and you don't get around preaching and you don't get around the teaching that you need, you're simply going to run errands for an old corpse, this thing right here, and you're not going to see the necessity and the need for charity. Now, we're not talking about a write-off at the end of the year. We're talking about charity as a type of love that gives. And notice the two things that this church is growing in. They're growing in their faith and they're growing in charity. And, of course, how is someone going to grow in faith? Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. All right, so getting in that book, and hearing that book preached, and hearing that book taught, amen, and being around the people of God that are doing the same, your faith will grow. God will then give you the grace that you need to grow in charity. That's giving to others, and that's evident by people are willing, listen now, they're willing to sacrifice for the benefit of somebody other than themselves. Now, in this generation that you and I live, it's me first and you never. <laughs> right? It is. And to a certain degree, there, I think one of the reasons we become that way is because people have taken advantage of you and they've taken advantage of me in mass. So what happens is we just kind of close ourselves down and go, I'm not going to let anybody in. But you know what? You have to learn. You have to learn, and you learn it through preaching. You learn it through teaching. You learn it through reading the Bible. You learn through studying the Bible. And you learn through your consistent duty of prayer every single day that you learn to give of yourself sacrificially to other people besides yourself. And that's where this church was growing in. And when you see a body of people, no matter the size of them, and they're growing in faith, and then they're growing in charity, I'm telling you what, they are growing. And that's exciting. And what you're going to see here is Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they're bragging on these people, and they're bragging on this church. I tell you what, when I see the Lord do something around here, I talk about it. Why? Because it's exciting. It's exciting to see people grow. It's exciting when God will bring somebody in here, 
Now, we don't preach a dress code, right? Never have, never will. Don't even care about it. Why? Because half the time I can't even dress right. <laughs> right? That, that's really not the point. But the point is, is true change comes from the inside. And when you see the change happening and you know that someone's not behind the pulpit having an agenda... You're like, God's dealing with that person, and God's growing that person, and you can tell, and you can see it, and that's good stuff. All right, <clears throat> but they're growing in faith, and they're growing in charity. And what you got to remember is hell always begins with the mindset of give me, give me, I want, I want. Think about it. Luke chapter 15, verse 12 gives you about the prodigal son. You know what he said? His downward spiral began by saying, Give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. It was the first thing out of his mouth, Give me. <laughs> you know it's going downhill from there, right? And uh, I want what's coming to me. Uh, you need to give me what I deserve. Sound like our generation does. Our generation really does what you say. Well, you're awful hard on your... My, gen my generation is shot to pieces. The generation coming up behind me, God help them. I'll say this, we're not much better, but my generation didn't know what bathroom to go into. You think, that, I'm not being funny either. I don't say that like I told a good one from the pulpit, you know. I'm, I'm saying people don't even know it, and whether or not it's true, I've heard things, I've just heard it, and that's it, you can't substantiate uh, People or places thinking about putting stinking litter boxes in bathrooms. Really? My soul. So you know what's wrong our generation? Don't even know where to begin. But that's the thing. That's, uh, all, all that hell begins with give me, give me, I want, I want. Interesting enough, in Proverbs chapter 30, verse 15, old Solomon, not, uh, not Solomon, but Hezekiah, that verse, uh, chapter 30, is written by Hezekiah, and the men that copied them out of Hezekiah, king of Judah. Verse 15 says, begins with, The horse leech hath two daughters, crying, give, give. You know what a horse leech is? That's a bloodsucker. You know, you ever see a bloodsucker get enough blood? <laughs> you got to peel them off here and put salt on them. I mean, a bloodsucker will suck blood until the thing busts. <laughs> but uh, <clears throat> that horse leech hath two daughters crying, give, give. And that's where the trouble begins. You think about it, the same thing happened to Eve, right? And the same thing happens to us. We think, for whatever reason, Christian, you and I many times think we have a right to ask God for certain things and we don't. And that always causes trouble. Notice here in verse 3, I want you to see that old English word meet, M-E-E-T. It's just an old English word. It's not difficult to understand at all. Amen. King James Bible used the right word. And it simply means it's fitting or proper. It's fitting or proper. It's suitable. It's becoming for us to do these things. And Paul says, it is meat. He's saying, because we should be doing it. And verse 3 continues, because that your faith groweth exceedingly. And then in verse 4, so that we ourselves glory in you in the churches of God. So Paul and his companions, they're traveling around, and he's glorying about this church. They're bragging about them. They're talking about them. Amen. You see someone growing in the Lord, you ought to brag on them to other people. Amen. Especially if you want them to Jesus Christ. You ought to brag on them. And Paul was good at that. More, more I read about Paul, you know what Paul wasn't afraid of? He wasn't afraid of handing out, if I could say it like this, street cred. I've met a number of preachers along the road the last 30 years, and I hate to say it because I am a preacher. A lot of preachers are worried about their own image. They really are. 
And they're worried about, you know, having pulpit time. And you've got to listen to what I say. You know what I say? Hey, man, I'll tell you what, if you do something great, praise the Lord. Give some of the credit out, man. Why? It's not all about you. It's not all about me. You know what that is? That's King Saul syndrome. King Saul, you know, he was the king, seven foot something, right? He was head and shoulders above everybody else. And, uh, you know, he sure was glad when David killed Goliath. Amen. He sure was glad when David was fighting battles for him. But, oh, when the lady started singing, Saul hath slain his thousands and David has slain his ten thousands, now we got a problem. <laughs> they gave David more credit than they did the king. Well, why not? You ever think God's going to use someone else to do more than you do? That's just a given. Or stop and think about some of these people from uh, 100 years ago, some of the, the people that God used for the Great Awakening. You'll never accomplish what they did, but you can accomplish what God wants you to accomplish. And if you accomplish what God wants you to do and you serve Him the way He wants you to, you can stand uh, with a clear conscience and your chest held high at the judgment seat of Christ and make out just like John Wesley did, just like Jonathan Edwards did, just like Hudson Taylor did. But there's something about us, if you're not careful, you get this idea that no one can do something better than you, or no one can get more credit. I'll tell you what, when someone, when God lays it on someone and blesses someone, man, you ought to get behind that thing and praise Him for it. Amen. You find out someone won someone of Jesus Christ, praise the Lord. And so, no, well, I won two last year, and they only won one. What's up with this garbage, man? <laughs> I don't understand that. But Paul's good at bragging on them. Paul's good at talking about them. And what they're doing is they're using the church at Thessalonica to encourage other churches, other churches, and uh, so that they can be encouraged also. So they're glorying them. Why? Look at the rest of verse 4. Why are they, uh, they glorying in them? He says, For your patience and faith and all your persecutions and tribulations that ye endure. Let me tell you what the Thessalonians, they were going through some stuff, and I can kind of see it as you read and study the book of 1 Thessalonians. You see someone go through a hard time. When they come through the end of that thing, and they come through it still loving Jesus Christ, and still going to church, and still standing for the faith, and still standing for that, man, you ought to praise the Lord over that thing. Why? Because I tell you what, if some of y'all would have went through, some other people went through, you wouldn't make it. And you see someone go through that, you ought to make a big deal out of it. Praise God. Amen. And Paul's going to other churches in his missionary journeys, and he's bragging about the Thessalonians because they're being persecuted for their faith. They're witnessing to people. They're leading souls to Jesus Christ, and they were getting it in the neck everywhere they went. So he's bragging on them. He says, verse 4, for, the patience, for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that ye endure. So Paul's acknowledging that they're going through it. This church is still going through persecution. It's still going through tribulation. It's constantly getting it in the neck. And uh, this church, for whatever reason, Christian, uh, they can't seem to get a break. And this thing really struck a chord in your preacher's head and heart because it seemed like last year, I'm not crying to you when I say this, I just testify, it just seemed like last year me and my family could not catch a break to save our life. And it seemed like we kept getting it in the neck. And we kept getting it in the neck. And kept getting it in the neck. And I'm like, uh, surely, you know, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. You find out the light belongs to a train. (laughs) You know what I mean? And finally, oh, that thing's going to go through. Oh, it's going to lighten up a little bit. And then the rug gets pulled out. You say, what did you do? I started to get discouraged. You say, what happened? Packed up the old Yukon, headed south. 
But before we could even get there, the brakes went out on that thing again. He said to me, can't get a break. I got down there and I listened to almost 40 preachers preach their guts out and preach their heart out about all the trouble that they went through all year long. I said, Phew, thank God I ain't the only idiot going through all that, man. My goodness. And, you know, I got done listening to all their heartache. Their, it was coming out. It was literally sweating out of the preaching. And you didn't know what they are going through, but, man, you could tell it. You could feel it. You could sense the, the trouble that they went through. And I tell you what, at the end of that four days and stinking 40 preachers going through that pulpit, enough preaching to make you go punch drunk, I'm like, thank God. You say, thank God for what? Thank God they come through it. And the Lord's like, you're not the only one. Didn't he say, there hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man, but he who will with the temptation make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it? And over there in Peter, the affliction that you're dealing, it's the same affliction that's going on in the lives of all your brethren. In other words, if you're going through it right now and you don't want to tell me what it is, that's fine. I'd never ask. But you could probably count there's at least 500 other Christians around this country going through the exact same thing. No matter how awkward, no matter how embarrassing, and no matter how... How terrible you think the situation is. Probably at least 500 Christians going through that thing right there. The same afflictions that your brethren in this world are going through, Peter says. And Paul's bragging on this church because they're going through it. They're getting in the neck and they're still going on for Jesus Christ. Your patience, persecution that you're enduring. So notice here now in verse 4, the persecutions and the tribulations that they're enduring. I want you to notice this thing doctrinal. It has nothing to do with the great tribulation period of Matthew chapter 24 or Revelation chapter 2, all right? But rather, that church themselves, they're just under great persecution and under great tribulation. I think if there's something should start to be ringing true for the child of God, the more we go through the book of 1 Thessalonians and now into 2 Thessalonians, and in your life as a church member and as a child of God in 2022, that the way God proves His children is through trouble. He's going to prove us through trouble. He's going to test us. He's going to try us. And it's going to be through trials and tribulations. You better take this world's idea and philosophy and just chuck it out the window like, you know, healthy, wealthy, and wise, because that ain't in the Bible. That ain't in the Bible. Matter of fact, if it's all easy street for you, I would start doing some checking. Not that you need to ask the Lord for some trouble, <laughs> but if it's all easy street for you, maybe you're no threat to the devil in any way at all. Take your Bible, go to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. One of the things you're going to have to learn, Christian, is whenever you're a growing church, one of the signs that you're growing is that you're going to come under constant persecution. That doesn't mean you walk away with a complex. (laughs) That doesn't mean you walk around like, oh, gloom, despair, and agony on me, and all that stuff. But you're going to come under persecution if you're doing right. And the, Lord, uh, and the Lord just saw fit to make it happen that way, and that's the way he tries your faith, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Look what Brother Peter says. He says, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though something hap- something stra- uh, some strange thing happened to you. But isn't that how we do it as Christians? The trouble comes, we're like, oh, why me? I was thinking that same thing. Why me? I'm your kid. Why in the world? And the Lord's like, yeah, that's how I prove you. You're going to find out we get a little farther down the road. That's how the Lord figures out what you're worth. As a Christian, what? Persecution. (laughs) 
now, I want you to see here there's three types of tribulation. Three types of tribulation. First of all, we just mentioned it. It's the Great Tribulation period. All right? Now, that's not here yet, and we'll be gone if you're saved when that happens. But first of all, there's the Great Tribulation. Then there's tribulation for the Lord. That's something that you have to suffer for the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, that's in verse 4. But now look at 2 Thessalonians 1.6. I want you to see the third type of tribulation. 2 Thessalonians 1.6. Notice what Paul says. He says, Seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. So here you have number three. Tribulation that is put on individuals by God Himself because those individuals are messing with you. Ain't that wild? Three types of tribulation. The Great Tribulation period, something that you personally are going to suffer for the Lord Jesus Christ. And then thirdly, tribulation that God puts, somebody else, puts on somebody else because they're messing with you. And that's verse 6. And you really got to be careful that you don't try to go about doing it yourself. <laughs> Amen? You got to be careful about that. But listen, when you suffer correctly and you do it right... It gives God the right to turn around and put something on somebody else that's messing with you. Why? God is the avenger. God is the one that takes care of business. God is the one that settles all accounts. Not you and not me. <laughs> I wouldn't settle it right. I'd destroy everyone who got in my path, and so would you. But you've got to be careful about not doing it yourself. We'll talk more about that when we actually get down to verse 6. But don't get the tribulation mixed up here. And you, you got to constantly, I'm going to keep hitting this thing because of the world that we live in, you cannot begin to think uh, that gain is godliness. And that thing's covered in 1 Timothy chapter 6, 5 and 6. And this world thinks that all gain is godliness. And that no trouble means that you're in the perfect will of God. Did you catch that? That's the world's philosophy. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 5, Paul warns against those who think gain is godliness. In other words, if you've got a big building, all your bills are paid, and you're growing numerically, and you've got 25 ministries, or however many, how, one more ministry than the church down the road, then you must be spiritual. It has nothing to do with it. That's the modern business mentality, and that is the mentality that you have to fight as a Christian. Why? Because every time you turn on the television, there it is. Every time you turn on the radio, there it is. Every time you talk to people, even other Christians, there it is. This is what our church, and look, oh, this is what we're doing. And, and I, why don't you do that? I'll tell you what, I'll tell you, we have such great results. Really? What kind of results do you have at your church? I don't have any results. I leave the results up to God. He told me to get into the vineyard and work. And at the end of the day, and Matthew, he's the one that pays me. I'm not supposed to sit here and count the results. I'm supposed to get in here and labor. And not only that, if you take that parable about the vineyard, I'm not supposed to complain if I think someone else is getting paid more than I am. All right. <clears throat> but that kind of thinking is found nowhere in the Bible. You've got to remember this. All the prophets suffered, right? All the apostles suffered. Jesus Christ suffered. And the church that is doing right has always suffered persecution. Persecution and tribulation, believe it or not, that thing's a paradox. You say, well, uh, what's a paradox? Well, a paradox is a tenet or proposition contrary to received opinion. 
In other words, in the Bible you find several places, and I'm not going to go into them, but you'll find several places where God works the complete opposite that mankind works. Now you can understand Isaiah chapter 55, he said, My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are higher than your ways, he says. And that thing about persecution, tribute, that thing's a paradox. Uh, to show you that if you're doing right, you're going to have persecution, you're going to have tribulation, you're going to have problems, amen? And as a Christian, if you spend all your prayer time that you do praying, praying for no problems, how's the Lord supposed to try you? Lord, give us a good day. What if He don't want you to have a good day? <laughs> well, you know what I mean. No, I don't know what you mean. What if, what if for your day, he, doesn't He say that we're appointed unto afflictions? You're going to tell me when you're suffering affliction, you're going, oh, this is a great day. You know, and you blow a transmission and it's like $2,400 and you don't even have $240. That is not a great day. But yet, if you're going to be in the will of God, 1 Thessalonians 5.18, you're supposed to give thanks? <laughs> what are you, nuts? A little bit. But the church has always suffered. Always suffered. And to show you that if you're doing right, you're going to have persecutions. You're going to have tribulations. You're going to have problems. And that's the Lord's way of showing you that you are in the will of God. Now listen, if you're out here in this world and you're suffering for your own sin and you're suffering for your stupidity, don't blame God for it. Amen? <laughs> it's a strange thing the way the Lord does it because it just goes contrary to this world. It goes absolutely contrary. And the world will look at the church and they say, well, they must not be in the will of God because there's trouble there. Right? That's what they'll say. And they'll say, where do you go to church? And you'll go, <clears throat> where do you go? <laughs> I believe. Oh, oh, that church. Yeah, I've heard about that church. <laughs> you poor fellow. <laughs> you know, and that's how it goes. Why? Because we're not going to compromise. We're going to stand on the book. You say, we don't have to be a jerk about it. Well, Paul said, have I become your enemy because I tell you the truth? You ever stop and think that maybe you listen to way too much of this world? And because you listen to what they have to say more than you do what the Bible has to say, when the preacher gets up to say something, then just possibly it's rubbing your fur the wrong way, not because of his inability to teach and reach and preach, but maybe because you're just so hooked up with the world. That's what I thought. Hmm. Look at uh, verse 4 again. Verse 4 says, So that we ourselves glory in you in the churches of God for your patience, and faith and all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. Verse 5, which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God. Here it is, that ye may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which ye also suffer. So he says in verse 4, the persecutions and tribulations that you endure are the manifest token of the righteous judgment of God. Why? So that you can be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you suffer. Now look, John chapter 1, verse 12. But as many as received him to them gave you power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, right? That's your sonship. All right, you're born into the kingdom of God when you trust Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. All right, there, there's nothing you can do apart from that to get into the kingdom of God. The worthiness of you into the kingdom of God has to do with the right to reign in the millennial kingdom. I'll say it again. The worthiness here in this verse is the right to reign in the millennial kingdom with Jesus Christ. 
All right? Now, I know you guys know some of this stuff, but let's go to Colossians chapter 3. Man, that's a big bug that's up here. Wow. Yeah, that's a big one. Colossians chapter 3. Usually by this time of year, you get them flies that are kind of like stalling out. And they just kind of like suicide flies, you know, bombing you out or something. <laughs> I mean, one year they were so bad, Brother Mel had to put OSB on pews and put ladders up there and get up in there. But anyways, Colossians chapter 3. <laughs> you had more guts than I did, man. Colossians chapter 3, I want to show you this. And I'm sure you know the verses, but this stuff bears repeating. Because one of the things that gets real messed up today is what we're dealing with. All right? And it's a very important doctrine you want to make sure you understand. Colossians 3.24. Paul says here in the book of Colossians, chapter 3, verse 24, he says, Knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for ye serve the Lord Christ. All right, so what is it that brings you reward? The service for Jesus Christ. The service of Jesus Christ brings about the earned reward from God, and that's in the millennium. That's the millennial reign. Notice verse 25. But he that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong which he hath done, and there is no respect of persons. In other words, whatsoever you do, back up to verse 23, do it hardly unto the Lord because there is a reward for what you do. Amen. As they say, the retirement program for a Christian is out of this world. <laughs> it really is. One of the most difficult things for a Christian to realize is you may never see your rewards until you're up there. I believe that's why many Christians choose to live their life for themselves because they're so fixed with the here and now they can never set their sights on the hereafter. One of the hardest things for you to get through your mindset and to flush your brain of the world's way of thinking is coming in time after time, getting up day after day and doing something for Jesus Christ to the which you may never see any rewards until you get to glory. But that's what we're supposed to do. The Bible says, lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven, where moth nor rust doth corrupt. Amen? All right. <clears throat> and if you don't do things hardly as to the Lord, then every man's work will be tried, won't it? To see as to what sort it is. That's back in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 at the judgment seat. And when you get to the judgment seat of Christ, you'll stand before the Lord. He'll judge every work that you do by the motive you did it with. Did you do it to be seen? Or did you truly do it because you love the Lord Jesus Christ? And if that stuff goes through the eyes of the Lord Jesus Christ and goes through the fire, then you'll receive the right for the right you did. But also notice, you'll receive the wrong for the wrong that you did. So you've got to be careful about that thing. Grab Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. You receive the right for the right you did, and you receive the wrong for the... There's a reward both ways. Romans chapter 8, look at verse 15. Paul says here in Romans chapter 8, verse 15, For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Verse 16, The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Now your relationship to God, that's your salvation, that's your sonship, that means you have a birthright that's promised you, amen? That's eternal. There is nothing uh, you can do to lose that birthright. But notice in verse 17, there's a semicolon after Christ. You see that? Notice what it says. If so be that we suffer with Him. 
that's Christ, that we may be also glorified together. So when is Christ glorified? He can glorify at the second advent when he comes back. He's glorified as King of kings and Lord of lords, and he sets up his kingdom on this earth for 1,000 years. He's glorified in front of everybody at the millennial reign. Christ is the one that comes down at the second advent, and he takes the kingdom by force. He rules with a rod of iron, the Bible says. And if you want to be glorified together with him at that particular time, here's the requirement. You say, what's the requirement? <laughs> you got to suffer. <laughs> Not for you, but you got to suffer for him. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 2. You know where we're going here. Suffering is required if you're going to rule and reign for Jesus Christ. You say, well, what kind of suffering? Well, it might be different things for different people. You might suffer, but you might be in a job for 30 years, and they might pass you over promotion because you won't do what they do. You won't go to the Christmas party. You won't go out with the boys drinking, amen? You won't go out carousing. You won't mess around with this, and you won't do this, and you won't do that. They know you're saved. They know you go to church. They know you have a Bible. You passed out tracts or something, and you know what? You're just trying to do your best to raise your family, live for God, and people see it. The boss sees it. He can't stand it because he got saved some one long time back and you got him under conviction so then they pass you over for raises they pass you over promotions amen so what is that suffering for Jesus Christ that doesn't mean you're necessarily going to go out back here and be burned at the stake thank God they don't do that in America yet (coughs) yet I mean I know some of y'all don't read the history books but you're some of your brethren used to hang you and whip you back in the 16 and 1700s when you first came over here. You don't know that because you don't hear about that. Puritans used to hang you. The Calvinists used to hang you and whip you and beat you. Obadiah Holmes, Baptist preacher, was whipped and beaten and almost hung by the Puritans and the Calvinists. Say why? Because he wouldn't take a license to preach. It wasn't because he didn't wear a mask. Amen. <laughs> but they beat him so bad till his boots filled up with blood. You say what he did when he got done with uh, serving his jail time and healing up. He went back out there and preached a message, set this country free religiously. All right, but enough of that. Look at 2 Timothy 2. The requirement is that you suffer for Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9. But nobody reads history these days. I know you've got to go into books for that stuff. And We're pretty good as a Christian people of thumbing and swiping and all that stuff. But reading books, that's, that's a different story. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9. The Bible says, wherein I suffer trouble. This is Paul speaking here. As an evildoer, even unto bonds. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure all things for the elect's sake, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. It is a faithful saying, for if we be dead with him, we shall also live with him. Now notice, if we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. Obviously, listen now, he can't deny your sonship. He can't deny your birthright. Amen? You in the family. No matter how weird, how nerdy you are, you're part of the family if you're saved and you can't get kicked out. Thank God for that. But listen, your, your sonship has been bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. What he's denying, he's talking about denying you the rulership in his millennial kingdom. And uh, so if we suffer for him, then you're able to reign with him. And if you deny him down here, you know what I mean? If you deny him down here, guess what? Then he denies you the opportunity to rule and reign with him. And you, uh, you can, I'll just give you the reference, but you can, you can uh, look at the parable of the pounds over there in Luke chapter uh, oh, 
19, uh, 13 to 27 there. And that thing about the parable of the pounds, you know, he gave, uh, gave the three different people uh, pounds there. And he said, occupy till I come, right? And he went back to get the kingdom. And he came back, uh, the one fellow, he had uh, done something with what God gave him. And he'd uh, increased his pounds by 10. That's, of course, a British uh, money measurement there. And he increased, I think it was by 10 pounds. And so you know what he's rewarded with, right? He said, be thou over 10 cities. So there's the type. There's the type. The type is the parable of the pounds. If you do what you're supposed to with what God gave you, then if you're faithful, well done, thou good and faithful servant when he comes back, then he gives you the opportunity to rule and reign with him, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12. And that's the picture there in the parable of the pounds. And that's, gonna, that's the type of what's going to happen with you. If you've been faithful what God's given you, uh, you've used it for him, and of course you did it with the right motive, amen? So you always got to keep your motive in check. It's not about quantity. It's about quality. Amen? I mean, parents, don't you remember when you tell your kids to go clean a room? Now, nine times out of ten, they went and cleaned it just because they were afraid you were going to bury them, amen? Well, not really, but they just did it because you told them. But every once in a while, you come out... I mean, they really did it, and they did it without you telling them. And you're like, are you ill? And you're like, this is really nice. Yeah, they wanted something. (laughs) Or maybe it's just because they loved you. They might not come out and tell you that, but maybe they did it because they loved you. And you've been faithful with what God's given you. You used it for Him. You did it with the right motive. And you've got to realize that there's a lot of people doing things today that are not being done with the right motive. And uh, many Christians, even preachers, they put themselves into the ministry or they gave themselves a ministry for God that they think that they just ought to do when in fact God really had nothing to do with it. It was all them. And you're going to find out when you get to the judgment seat of Christ that although it may look like brother so-and-so and and sister so-and-so, they were just always busy as a one-legged man in the kicking contest and all there, and they're just doing all this, and they just, oh, here, oh, there, and they're just so busy, busy. You may find when you get to the judgment seat of Christ that people did it for the wrong motive. They did it to be seen of men. I hate to see when I get the judgment seat of Christ when, because the Lord tries the heart. He tries the reins. He's the one with the eyes of fire in the book of Revelation. He looks at you. He looks right through you, and he can see the motive. Doesn't Hebrews 4.12 said that the Word of God is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart? That's why we don't read that book. Why? Because when we read that book, the Holy Spirit says, Yeah, what about that? And you're going... I got some gardening to do. <laughs> I got to get out of here, man. <laughs> and what that book does is it tries your motives. It tries your thoughts. And uh, even though people act like the, what they did for God, I think many times you'll find out that God had no part of it. So therefore, because of that, they might not receive a reward. You say, why? Well, the heart matter was wrong. And the Lord looks on the heart. I remember for a period of time, uh, we did street preaching for many, many years. Uh, from May to, uh, oh, what was it, October? No, September. May to basically Memorial Day to uh, Labor Day. Go preach on the street and so forth and so on. I got to the point in the middle of probably about six, seven, or eight years into street preaching, I find myself getting upset at people. You say, why? Why preach you get upset at people? Because they weren't street preaching. See what I mean? You say, what do all those ministries really produce? You know what they produce? I'll tell you exactly what they produce. A lot of those ministries like visitation 
And I'm not against visitation. Amen. We've seen people saved here without a visitation program. Amen. Uh, I'm not against street preaching either. But the Lord didn't call us to street preach. He just wants us right now to be passing out tracts and holding signs. Uh, not blast the community. Not quite yet. All right. But you know what that stuff produces in the long run if you're not careful? Jealousy. It produces envy. Well, why weren't you out there when we were out there? You know, I work all week long, and I work my fingers to the bone, and I gave up my Sunday, what, what 30 minutes? Yeah, I get it. <laughs> but you should have been out. That's what that stuff produces. You've got to make sure that your heart's right. You've got to make sure your motive's right. That's why when you stand before the Lord of the judgment seat of Christ, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the Lord is the one who tries it, the Bible says, of what sort it is. Because let me tell you, what, there's some people in, in uh, I think it's Indiana right now, uh, that run more buses. We'll never have a bus. I doubt it. Unless someone buys a bus and then buys the gas to put in the bus and then pays for the insurance so he can drive the bus and then decides to go pick up the kids. Well, I can't do anymore. But if we get a bus, so we'll only have one, and this church has got like 100 buses. So if it's all about quantity, I'm never going to stand a chance at the judgment seat of Christ. But if it's about quality, I might have a chance. And the Lord's after your motive. He's after your heart. And you got to make sure that you're doing what you're doing because your heart is right. And you got to make sure that you're allowing God to do it. I don't know if you remember in 1 Timothy chapter 1.12, the Lord, uh, Paul kind of blames the Lord. He says, he put me into the ministry, counting me faithful, he said. He put me in the ministry. And I did the best I could when it came to this point. I never, I'll close with this before we uh, finish uh, verse 5 here. I'm not the poster child of doing things right. You know that. I've been your pastor long enough. But I'll tell you this much. I never desired to be a pastor. Never once. As a matter of fact, my idea of ministry was kind of a, like I have no, no desire to be one of them fellas right there. And I'd seen uh, enough battles in the trenches. That I'm like, I'll just be the number two guy. The number two guy is a lot easier to be. And I'll just be, I'll be an Aaron or a Hur on either side of Moses, the old man. And all I ever really desired was to, be, was to help the old man. The old man was blazing a path 25 years before I ever even got there. And so I got beside and I got, I got my chance to help the old preacher. Amen. He said, what would you do? Just held up an arm. Go ahead, preacher. Whatever you want to do, I'm here. And finally, after 18 years, the Lord uh, reached down and, and, uh, and I'm like, you're kidding me. He's like, no, I'm not kidding. I'm like, yeah, I told you and I told everybody else I know I don't want to be a pastor. It's like the Lord, like the Holy Spirit said, well, I didn't tell you that. <laughs> and I didn't want nothing to do with being a pastor. And then the Lord just changed my heart in a matter of 90 days. And that whole thing switched around like that. You say, what would you do? Well, when the Lord brought us over here, you can ask my wife, you can ask my family. I said, I'm going to make the Lord put me into it. And the Lord shoved me into it. I didn't jump at the first thing that came. I made the Lord push me into it. And the Lord literally pushed me where we're at today. And uh, Paul says, uh, he says, Paul said that, <clears throat> that the Lord put him into the ministry. All right, let's stop there right on the verge of verse 5 there, manifest token of the righteous judgment of God. Your suffering as a Christian, many times, if you're suffering for the right reason, it simply is proving that you're doing the right thing, doing the right thing. All right.